What does God really want? What does God really want from us? Not quite the same as what do I really want? What does God really want? Does he want religious acts? Does he want us to come to a place of worship, to say the words, to stand up, to sit down, to sing? Does he want us to take the communion or the mass, say the prayers, do prayer, do the rosary, make religious smoke and smells? Does he want that sort of stuff? Does he want us to do religious acts? Is God actually interested on the outside? So if we give to charity, does God say, that's it, that's what I wanted? If we help the homeless, God say, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted, no more, no less. Or is there more to it than that? Is he looking on the inside as well? Or is he only interested on the inside? Is the only thing that he wants is us to feel things very strongly when we worship and when we sing, things like that? Or that we pray and we feel a sense of calm in the sort of mindfulness manner? What does he want? What is it so that he would look at us and be satisfied and say, that's what I want? And how could I ever be that? And the more you think about, about it, the more searching and in fact impossible the question is. We've been looking in the book of Isaiah. It talks about a certain period of history and the events of that and the people in that age and it ends up thinking of God's people being taken as exiles, captives into Babylon. And I think those sorts of questions would have exercised them. They sit by the rivers of Babylon and they hang their harps on the willows and weep when they remember Zion and there they are in this metropolis, this huge impressive city of Babylon which dwarfs Jerusalem for magnificence. And they're sitting thinking, here we are in exile. We never thought it would come to that. God said that if we were sinful people, he'd take us here. We didn't believe him, and he did exactly what he said. It proves we're as sinful as God said we would be. We, we are. We've been brought from Babylon, uh, sorry, to Babylon, from the city Jerusalem, which is destroyed. He promises us that we will go back to a glorious city of Jerusalem 
How can that be? How can that be? Can God do that? Can he bring us back? Would he ever want to bring us back? What does he want of us so that we should be saved? What does he want of us that we should be the sort of people that he would bring back to his glorious city? And how can that ever happen? Sort of questions that the exiles would have asked and not that different to questions that we might ask. Just one little point here. If you've looked up the book of Isaiah and Wikipedia, the three sections that I've mentioned, they will, it says on Wikipedia that nobody with any intelligence, words to that effect, nobody with any intelligence uh, thinks it's written by one author. It's got three sections. It must have three different authors. Well, I beg to differ. Um, there's lots of believing commentators who say it's written in three sections. doesn't mean there's three different authors. Um, so just goes to show, don't believe everything you read on Wikipedia. I'll just remind you of the cheese. Uh, the end bit there. The middle bit there. The front bit there, and we've looked at all of those, and the one that we're going to look at today is right at the end, click there, and I'll just put a summary of the things that we've seen in the previous sections, which I won't stop to enlarge upon. Just need a little bit of geography, but not too much, that's the matter, and um, you just need to know that there's Jerusalem and the exiles were taken to Babylon. Jerusalem, Babylon, Babylon, the enemy who will take all the people to exile. And what's being promised and has always been promised is that God will destroy Babylon and rebuild Jerusalem and bring the people back. That's all the geography you need to know. Let's summarize the chapters. Now, has anybody actually read would anybody like to be prepared to own up to having read 56 to 66? I've read them. Anybody ever got as far as that? Yeah, Ross has read them. Yeah, well done. Okay. Everybody else ran out of energy before they got to that. Or perhaps you're still on the way. Chapters 56 to 66, worth reading, maybe more helpful to read them after you've had this little introduction to them, which is what we're looking at today. There's the line, 56 through to 66. If you read them, they swirl around all over the place. And um, some people say it's just a rag bag of things put together. I think it isn't really a rag bag. It's got a theme. And uh, it works, I think, about like this. So it is looking forward now. Isaiah is looking forward and speaking to really a generation that's yet, yet to come. They've been taken into exile and they're perhaps thinking, what does this mean for us now? And they're going to come back from exile and he's speaking to that situation um, ahead. So we're thinking of, uh, I don't know why I did that, we're t thinking of this situation. Chapter 56 
talks about the city and the people in the city. And chapter 66 talks about the, the city and the people in the city. Chapter 56 talks about foreigners coming in. If you just are prepared to look at chapter 56, you'll see that it says, verse 3, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. So let me just remind you that in, in the law of Moses, foreigners don't come in to the Lord and eunuchs because they're, uh, they're not what uh, they were made to be, sort of imperfect in that sense. They wouldn't be included either. But chapter 56 begins with saying foreigners will come in and eunuchs will come in. The, chapter all, the chapters there also talk about the deep failure and sinful inability of the people, and we've read some of that. And it also re-emphasizes the promised holy glory. And the chapters at the end do a similar thing. Uh, if you look right at the end in chapter 66, you get foreigners coming in. Where would it say that, for example? Like in 66.19, it talks about, I'll send to those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, Libyans, Lydians, and so on. I will proclaim my glory among the nations. So it goes back to the nations and the foreigners. And the, those latter chapters are also asking, how can we be saved? And the, the latter chapters also emphasize there will be salvation, a new heaven and a new earth. Right in the middle of that is um, what I think answers the question, how can that happen? And the middle bit contains something about the Lord who conquers. So if you look in chapter 59, which was read to us, verse 15... end of 15, it says, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. And it's a picture of God saying, this situation needs to be sorted no one else is able to do it. No one else is doing it. I'll do it myself. So we get the indignant Lord who conquers. And we also get another person in, in chapter 61 who is very like the servant, but it's in chapter 61 where it, he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness to the prisoners. So we've got this person as well. In the middle of the descriptions of, look, how, look at our sin, 
This is what God's going to do. How's it going to happen? Look at our sin. This is what God's going to do. How's it going to happen? In the middle, the Lord says, I'm going to go to war on this. And we have this this, uh, person who says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me and has anointed me. So we're going to look at that in detail, but I think we've got that sort of sandwich arrangement with the the core of it being the, uh, the Lord and the servant who step in to this situation to make it happen. And who might that be? Well, we'll find out in a minute. So I'm going to just tease out those, uh, those individual themes and look at them together. So the first one is the sinful inability of the people. So the Jews are either thinking of being back in the land or are back in the land, and they have these questions. What does God require of us? Are we up to it, or will we get kicked out again? You know, what was the... There we are in, in, the, in the city, and we're, we've got a certain sort of thoughtfulness, perhaps tears being shed. We, we're back, but you know the problem was never geography. The problem by which we got kicked out of the promised land to go to Babylon wasn't just politics, it was our sin. That was the problem. And now we're back. Has that problem actually been solved? You don't solve the problem of sin by moving somebody from one country to another, do you? So look, let's look at 56.1, where the Lord speaks and says... Maintain justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. So that justice there is this word mishpat, meaning order and things being right in the, in the society and in the community. Maintain that. And it's drawn out in uh, a couple of ways. So I've put, uh, first of all, 58 verse 7, which is part of a long section on how they treat one another. And in 58 7, it says, this is what I want. So they say, we do fasting. And God says, okay, we're going without food. What's the point of that? What, what does that achieve? And he says, the sort of fasting that I'm looking for is in chapter 58, verse 6, to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Isn't it to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. So he says, I'm looking for that relationship with your neighbor, in the New Testament we'll probably summarize that and saying love for your neighbor, that's what we need to have. And he also, in, these, in this first part of the sandwich, uh, says quite a bit about the Jewish Sabbath. So 56 verse 7, for example, uh, he says, have I got the right verse? 56 verse 7. Uh, 
foreigners this includes. Verse 6, who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain. I will give them joy in my house of prayer. And it says it somewhere else, which I can't quite find. Let's just read on from verse 7. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, and my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Sovereign Lord declares, who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them beside those already gathered. And where is the other verse? Verse 2. Thank you very much. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, who keeps his hand from doing an evil. Well, it's all put in Old Testament terms, isn't it? Eunuchs, foreigners, temples, um, and of course, the Sabbath is a Jewish thing, isn't it? It's the Jewish Sabbath, the Saturday. And he's saying that the Sabbath is the thing that, if you like, is put there as, a, as, an, um, as the instance of what it is to be devoted to the Lord compared with business and pleasure. Because he says where is, the, the, the Jewish Sabbath would be built into their week as the time and space for the Lord. You could be doing business, you could be having fun, but you give time and space to the Lord. And uh, he says, on the one hand, I want to see you loving your neighbor, and I want to see you really loving the Lord. Uh, those, you've got two aspects of what he's looking for in those people. And I had 58.14, didn't I? If you call the Sabbath a delight and the, the Lord's holy day honorable, if you honor it by not going your own way, not doing as you please or speaking idle words, you will joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. So that sacred space in the Jewish lifestyle representing time and space for God, love for the Lord, finding Him the best thing. He says, that's what I want to see. And he's got those two angles, hasn't he? Love for people, love for the Lord. But where are the people at? Well, 59, 1 to 6 is what we had read. Uh, sorry, 59, 6 to 9. Where he says, where are we at actually? Where is the heart by nature? What are we about by nature? 59 verse 6, their deeds are evil deeds. Acts of violence are in their hands. They rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. They, uh, there is no justice in their paths. They've turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will find peace. He says, this is our problem. We can see what God wants, but we can't produce that. There is no health in us. There is no help in us. We can't heal ourselves in this. And uh, he will say in 64 verse 6 at the other end of the sandwich, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And he's going to, they're going to be very, very... Um, what shall I say, radical in saying our problem is our sin 
and being moved from one country to another doesn't change that. We know what God wants, but we can't produce it. And this is what the favoured people are saying. Maybe in the time of Jesus, things hadn't changed very much. People had moved, uh, well, they were in, back in the land, and yet they were asking themselves, ah, is this really what God wants? Are we where God wants us to be? What are we missing here? And this confession of sin is highly appropriate. We're stuck without God's grace working in us, just moving us from one place to another, just going without food, doesn't do what God wants. We're stuck in our sin. And if the favored people, the people that God blessed by bringing them back from, um, from uh, exile, bringing them back to the promised land, were thinking and saying that, how much more we how much more we who haven't had that sort of favor, we're just people. How much more would we say, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have done the things that we ought not to have done. We have left undone the things that we ought to have done, and the help isn't in us. Jesus told a story about two people who went up to the tabernacle, two people who went up to the temple. One of them was a religious expert. He didn't get it. He said, I thank you that I'm, I'm not as bad as other people. Do lots of religious things. I pray, give my money. And the other man who went up to the temple and said, this is it. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which of those two people got the point? It was this one who said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So first of all is that sinful inability. And the Apostle Paul would later pick on these passages to describe the human condition, and to say things like this, no one will be declared righteous by the works of the law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've talked to people in this room who have said, well, I'm not a sinner. Maybe you're thinking that, I'm not a sinner. The Bible says you don't understand yourself, you don't understand your situation. Without Jesus Christ, you are lost in your sin, and you cannot stand before God. Number one, the sinful inability of his people. Contrast this then with the definite promises of glory Will God ever have a people who he is satisfied to bring to his holy city? Or will the holy city be empty? Well, God says there will be people. 
So if you look, for example, 62, 1 to 5, just as an example, there's lots of uh, passages like this in this section. But an emphasis, the Lord's project will not fail. Chapter 62, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent, for Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness, all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of God. No longer will they call you desolate, deserted or your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah and the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. And as a young man marries a maiden, so your sons will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. He says it will be, there will be people. Your righteousness will shine. The nations will see. You'll be a glorious crown. You won't be deserted. You'll be married. You won't be barren but fruitful. And that's another metaphor he uses of, of the fruitfulness that will be. So we've got this huge tension of the people saying, to be honest about us, there's no help in us. We can't heal ourselves. And God's saying, this is what it will be. There will be a glorious people. There will be a holy people. The nations will see it. Uh, you'll be not a, a, a disgrace, but a crown. You'll not be deserted, but you'll be married, if you use that metaphor. Or you'll be fruitful, to use that metaphor. God will have a saved people in a glorious city, under a forget, forever king, who is the son of David. God said, I'm going to do that. And he will not be prevented by the Babylonian powers and their gods. You might look at the situation, interpret, interpret it and say, God was supposed to save that holy city, Jerusalem, but he didn't. He was defeated by Babylon. And God says, no, that's not to understand it correctly. And the opposing nations, uh, ebbing and flowing and uh, attacking and whatever, will they defeat God and his purpose and the answer is no, says God. No, 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 no. I am planning all this. It serves my purposes. Will the sin of his people defeat his purposes? Apparently not. Will anything defeat his purposes? Apparently not. God says, I am going to save my people. I am going to glorify Jerusalem. This project of mine to have my people from all the different ethnic groups will succeed. And you say, how on earth is that all going to happen? Which brings us to the figures in the middle of the sandwich. How do we get from sinfully unable to holy and fruitful? And there are, answer, there are two figures described here which I think are the same person. 
in the end, but they're described in two, uh, two different uh, connections. So let's look at the first figure, which is the Lord, this intervening conqueror. So let's look at 59 verse 15, which was read to us, where the Lord looks and is displeased, this is Isaiah 59, 15, that there was no justice. There is no mishpat, there's no order. And he looks, verse 16, there was no one, he was appalled, there was no one to intervene, so his own arm intervened for him. His own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. And you have this uh, wonderful description of the Lord as a warrior. It's picked up in the New Testament, isn't it? Uh, But uh, let's not go down that route at the moment. It describes God as equipped for battle. He puts on righteousness as his blessed plate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on the garments of vengeance and wraps himself in zeal uh, as in a cloak. And he says, I am going to do battle against whatever enemy it is that stops my plan happening, and I'm going to completely destroy any enemy that's in my way, and I'm going to have victory, and I'm going to succeed, and I will do it. And you get that sense of his zeal. And it says that he will repay his enemies in verse 18. And if we follow it through to verse 20, it's put in uh, alongside redemption. You get the same thing in uh, chapter 63, which also speaks about the person on his own in battle, conquering. Chapter 63, verse 2, why are your garments red like one of those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger. I trod them down in my wrath. Blood spattered my garments. I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption has come. I looked. There was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave me support. So my own arm worked salvation for me. My own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and pure poured their blood on the ground. So it's very fierce, and it includes judgment, doesn't it? But it also includes redemption. And God is saying, my enemies, I will tread them down until I win. And here's a question. Do his enemies include sin and death? Now, from the bits of Isaiah that I've read, I think it would be Um, another half step to say that that's explicitly stated but the New Testament would take that step and would say yeah when God went out to war to judge to defeat the real enemies sin and death were included in his agenda he defeated sin he destroyed death and in fact In the 1 Corinthians 15 passage, it specifically says in verse 26, 
it says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He will reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we are beginning to see an answer to this question. How can we get from sinfully unable people to a glorious city, free and holy? And the answer is that God intervenes and says, I will destroy everything that stands in my way. I will work so powerfully that no enemy is left to stand. I will do that. No one else is going to do it. My people can't do it. Nobody else is going to. I'll do it myself. I suppose the thing that we find difficult to get, well, we find difficult to get a lot of this, don't we? We find it difficult to get what our sin is like. find it difficult to get how much God has promised and we also find it difficult to get how determined God is to achieve this and the lengths to which he's prepared to go to achieve this. Even the lengths of coming down from heaven to earth, taking human flesh, dying on a cross, bearing our sin and conquering sin by taking the worst that it, its consequences are in himself, in his body on the tree, taking it and then shrugging it all off as done, and then rising from the dead in victory, saying on the cross, it is finished, and rising, breaking the chains of sin and death and defeating Satan, thine be the glory, risen conquering son, Endless is the victory, you, uh, death, hath won. In the resurrection, Jesus conquers those things. And then the second person that uh, is in this passage is the one in verse... is the one in chapter 61. And this person says as follows... The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me, he's anointed, you see, that's the Christ, the Messiah, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from, from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Here's this person who um, is a bit like the, the branch who was in chapter 11, he brings good news, and he says, it's done. He heals the broken, he doesn't just bring good news, he heals the brokenhearted, he applies the victory to the people who need it. He applies deliverance to the captives. He transforms their grief into beautiful joy. And what a key figure he is. He's right at the center of all this that's going on in these chapters, and he's a bit of a mystery 
in the sense it isn't fully described who he is, until one day, Luke chapter 4, in a synagogue in a fairly backwater place up in the north of the country that nobody was that bothered about, in Luke chapter 4, in a place called Nazareth, in a synagogue there, a young man who hadn't had rabbinic training, he just was the son of a carpenter, went into the synagogue, Uh, he was asked to read, he took actually this book, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he read this bit, this man did, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this man rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and sat down and everybody is looking at him and he says to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the whole synagogue ought to faint or something because what a claim this man is making. He's saying, you know what it all said about the exiles and how they would get back to where they really ought to be? That there was a key person who would accomplish it. Uh, and Jesus, it was Jesus, of course. He stands there in a the synagogue and says, well, that's me, actually. Today, this is fulfilled in your very hearing. You're looking at the person that Isaiah was talking about all those years ago. And perhaps they said, you could have knocked me down with a feather. But what a statement for Jesus to make. He claims this text for himself. He's the redeeming king. He's the one who uh, makes all this happen. The conquering Lord who defeated Satan sin and death. So we've seen the inability of the people to save themselves, which I think we would, many of us would agree with. We've seen that the promises still stand. God will have a people. It, it is possible, but it's only possible through God. And then we've seen the key people in this the, the Lord himself and the king. The Lord who says, I'm going to do this. And the king, the, 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 the anointed one who says, I've come and I'm going to bring this to you myself with my own hands. And Jesus says, that's me. So what sort of people are we talking about? What are the people who, in whom this actually happens? What's the picture of these blessed ones? And the people in the synagogue that Jesus was talking to would have probably asked themselves, are we the blessed ones? Well, we're here in the promised land, but is that it? Present-day Israel might say, we're the blessed ones, we're in the promised land. And many Christians, I think, uh, incorrectly, think, yeah, that's the logic of it. They're in the promised land, they must be blessed. We should... um, think that they're the ones that God's talking about in the Bible, but I don't think they are. Is it the ethically pure people, like Paul the Pharisee would have said, I'm the blessed one because I work so hard at all the laws. 
I do the fasting, I do the sacred days, I do circumcision, I do all that sort of thing. Sorry, that should be ethnically. I'm a, my, my, I'm a proper Jewish Jew. You can count my, my uh, lineage back. It, it, and Paul would say, neither my ethnicity nor my religiosity counts for anything in this. Look at what it does say of the people who are the blessed ones. Well, they are the ones who are aware of their sin, and they say things like this, Our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us. We acknowledge our iniquities. They're painfully aware of their sin. Are you ever painfully aware of your sin? Or have you got to the point where that doesn't bother you anymore? Are you painfully aware of your sin? When you come to the Lord's table, do you say, I need this. I need shed blood. I can't live without shed blood because my sin needs to be covered. Here's another picture of those that the Lord is with, the blessed ones, 66 verse 2, where it says, this is the one I esteem who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's chapter 66 verse 2. This is the one I'm looking for. It's a little bit like Jesus when he gave the Beatitudes, didn't he? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart. Um, I can't remember the other ones. Blessed are the peacemakers. They've got the same people blessed here in Isaiah. The contrite, the lowly, the ones who are aware of their sin and look in faith to the Lord. The people who put faith into operation just it's put into operation in regard to our neighbor, Christian and non-Christian. Jesus will say, this is the command, love one another. And the person who puts earnestly into operation love for God and gives time and space in their week for God. It wasn't wasn't assumed that the nations would have the same timetable as the uh, as the Jews. It was understood if you go out to the nations, they're going to have different days. But it's time and space for God. So I'll just close by asking: Is this us? When it comes down to the heart of the matter, have we got it? That we're sinners. We can't heal ourselves. We need a saviour. We need a divine saviour. We need Jesus. And in humility, and in wonder, and in appreciation, we look to him. We put our trust in him. 
for what he can do for us and in us, what he alone can do by his grace and for his glory.